Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Find Your Finish Line, presented by Curad Performance, the official medical partner of Ironman. Find their far infrared kinesiology tape. You can get it for your training and your racing. Find it at Walmart. Find it on Amazon.com and at Ironman.com. This podcast is not only about you finding your finish line at a race or an event, but in life. I'll talk with people from all walks of life who have jumped over a lot of hurdles to get where they are today, both in life and sport. Their successes hopefully will inspire you. I've got a gentleman on the line and with this podcast right now that has successes coming out of his ears. It's absolutely amazing. It's my pleasure to introduce to everybody Barry Shepley. Hello, Barry. Good to be on with you, Mike. Uh, not easy to find a weekend that you or I aren't at a race someplace. <laughs> I, I, I know. And, and you know, when, when you take a look at your resume, Barry, a, a coach, a mentor, an author of Chasing Greatness, which we'll talk about in a little bit, TV and event commentator. Uh, you've been to like six Olympics, uh, dozens and dozens of world championships. How do you find the time to fit it all in? Well, you know, I think, you know, like anything and all of most of your listeners and viewers, if you want to get something done, you go to a busy person and they <laughs> just find the time, right? I've got friends who aren't working and they never seem to be able to get a 5K jog in and they, you know, can't get to get the birthday card on time, et cetera. So most of the people I know and you know, they're busy, they're time management, they go to bed thinking about what things I got to get accomplished tomorrow in what order, and, and you just nail off your task as you go. So, uh, But multitasking for sure, sleep deprivation have been two of my uh, strongest characteristics, and I'm sure they're, they're for you as well. Yeah, it's interesting on the, on the sleep angle, people would tell me, oh my gosh, I only got like seven hours of sleep last night. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. I'd be in heaven with seven hours of sleep. That's a, that's a good weekend on an Ironman weekend to get the seven between the three days. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Barry, let's step back a little bit. You know, you've you've coached. Um, you started out as a triathlete, and and uh, but kind of found your passion in coaching. You, you've coached many Olympic hopefuls and Olympic champions. You've coached uh, world champions. Uh, you've, you've been at events over and over again. Why, why do you think coaching kind of came naturally for you? Well, you know, I think the, the biggest factor was that if I'd only been five or 10% better, I probably would not have been where I'm at. <laughs> and that is, I would have kept thinking, you know, what? I, maybe if I kept training hard, I could actually get that Kona spot myself and, or the world championships or the Olympics, whatever that goal might be. And so pretty early on, uh, and in, in the book, you know, we'll talk a bit later, but there was a 1984 LA Olympics I'm making uh, vans in a place just outside of Detroit. Windsor is uh, one of the automobile capitals of yeah. North America. Making these vans, and the Olympics were on, and there was an Olympic guy who won the gold medal in L.A., and he was you know, 20 years of age. I was so inspired by that moment. I said, I, I want to go to the Olympics. It, like, it was just the, the energy of seeing a whole factory getting excited who generally don't say two words to each other, eight hour shift, look down at your pail, you know, at your lunchbox, grab your newspaper, get out at the end of the eight hours. They were so inspired that that energy just spoke to me. And so for the next 16 years, I'm like, I want to get to these Olympics. And I realized very quickly as I kind of knocked off the sports that I was thinking I might go to Olympics, that one I got cut from the university team, that one I couldn't get a second tryout. And the so the coaching side of me spoke to me because I saw athletes with talent who had no coaches. As you know, back in the 80s, I mean, the sport was just going. Maybe there's a race. There probably weren't too many uh, officials. There were virtually no coaches in that era, maybe just a few. Dave Scott and all those guys were self-coached or pretty much self-coached, Mark uh, Allen and the guys. So I got into the sport at a very early age, incredibly lucky that I was heading into university. I, I tailored my next five years of undergraduate and graduate work all around coaching, physiology, mental, nutrition, sports injuries. Uh, and the beauty was I had all these professors that said, you know, I've got some people in my class that are really not sure what they're gonna do with their life. Like every day you come in here and hound me. Like, how do I make a stronger hip flexor? How do I make this back muscle more supple? How do I get my range of motion for the swim? Whatever the case may be. I had a question every single day. 
And so I'm not sure if I tortured them or inspired them, but I was able to use that time as a developing coach in a sport that didn't exist. Uh, and, and probably the other biggest factor that happened was I started a program called Kids of Steel. And I was worried, as happens in most of North America, you know, there still aren't a lot of kids who do triathlon. There are a lot of adults who do triathlon, but the pyramid's in the wrong order. Usually you see a million kids play soccer and a few older adults or a million kids swimming or gymnastics. So I started this program, uh, really short triathlons, and not unlike Iron Kids and, you know, Weedabick Kids in New Zealand and the other programs, the Brownleys now have their own youth program. And in that very, very first summer, this is now 35 years ago, 12-year-old Simon Whitfield shows up at a local race. And for the last 35 years, we've been connected together, be it as coach, be it as mentor, be it as, you know, we've done lots of clinics and things together. But I just happened to be lucky enough to kind of say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep doing these things. I crossed the line and, you know, you called my name as I came in across the line of one of my Ironman races, but I got way more of a buzz uh, helping other people. And even in the Ironman race that I did in Arizona, I remember all day long looking around the course, seeing my athletes and saying, look, there's an age grouper who's only four minutes ahead of you. You got to <laughs> go here. And I'm like, damn, if I'm spending my time looking at everybody else's splits, you know, and they're not even in my age category, uh, you know. So I did it to hit that bucket list of I needed to get to the finishing line of an Ironman after all the years of of abusing athletes saying, look, you got another 5K, you can suck it up and just get there. I needed to go take my own pain for a, for a, a day. But but I get way more passion out of the coaching side of it, for sure. Barry, the best part about that, I can just see you. You're running up and down the, the, the lake there on the run, checking out the other athletes, trying to coach them. That, you, you had to know at that point, all right, I'm doing this Ironman. I'll get it done. Yep. But I just love being able to help others. Has that always been in your nature? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I grew up playing ice hockey. And so that was a sport where, you know, I, as a goaltender, you spend a lot of time looking at, I'm a goalie. So you spend all the time like saying, look to the defenseman, you got to get over there a little bit further, your sticks, you know, whatever. So you spend the whole time on the ice, you're seeing everything that's happening. And so I'd go back in the dressing room after the game and give some feedback to a forward or, a, you know, a defenseman, whatever, because you're out there the entire game and you're watching what the other team's doing. So it, it kind of was like almost like a quarterback in football. You had that opportunity to see the whole thing and to give feedback to your teammates. And so that was an important element of it. And then as I got further into triathlon, it just became obvious to me that, you know, there was an opportunity. Um, I met Les McDonald, the famous, you know, legend from North Vancouver who got uh, triathlon into the Olympic Games and was five-time Ironman champion himself. So he was a massive mentor uh, and played a ma huge role. And he said to me the probably the most important phrase I've ever heard in my entire life, if, if I had to look back, you have to be where sport is. And by that, he meant you can't sit in an office, can't go do nice little things over there and not be where a race is, where an athlete's at, where the coaching workout is at, where the pool is at. You got to go and be where they're at. And so I was incredibly lucky to be, you know, 30 years of, of Ironmans in Hawaii and out Ironman Canada when it was just getting started in the early years. Uh, and then because of last, he dragged myself and others around the world, whether it was Japan or Australia to the Gold Coast and, you know, their world champs and so forth. Um, so all these people gave me opportunities. I was young enough, stupid enough to just say there's no money in this, but, you know, I'm going to run down the pathway and see where it leads. And sometimes you never know where you're going to end up at. And, and that was just, you know, good fortune, hard work. And then when you do get a moment, you got to make the best of that opportunity. Well, you were smart enough to to grab it and put it in your pocket and keep it there for all these years, Barry, and the sport's much better off because of you. Let me let's go back to the early days of, uh, you know, the 2000 Olympics, Sydney, which, by the way, I don't know if you remember this. The first time we met physically face to face was in Sydney near yeah, the Opera I, House. I do. I do remember that. Absolutely. <laughs> and and I, I thought about that just today. Oh, my gosh, that's right. I remember. And the uh, I forget the, the guy's name, the CEO of USA Triathlon. Who was that at that Steve time? Steve Locke, I think, at the time. Steve Locke, yeah. I was yeah. talking to Steve Locke about tickets. <laughs> and, yeah, and then you came up and we all started talking. It was great. Well, I but, remember you, know, you saying, like, this is the big league. Like, you were, yeah. you know, you've been around the world. You'd seen stuff. But for all of us, I mean, this iconic opera house oh. and, you know, and Les McDonald and the uh, ITU board at the time and the, the Australian, uh, you know, organizing committee, 
they understood something that triathlon has done. I mean, if you go to swimming, a pool is a pool in every place in the world. You don't know what city you're in. You just see this great swimmers, you know, doing their magic that they do in an Olympic pool or world championships, whatever. Uh, similarly, a soccer pitch is a soccer pitch and so forth. But triathlon, in my estimation, is like one of the few other sports in the world, like maybe the road cycle, like the men and women's marathon. It's a postcard. You get to show off this city. Uh, and they have done just a brilliant job. I mean, the opera house, you know, you're jumping off the pontoon right in front. The, the, literally, the, uh, all of the grandstands are filled with the VIPs and the athletes and the big screen right on the steps of the opera house. You're coming down, you know, Macquarie Street. You see the, the bridge, the Sydney Opera House bridge in the backdrop. I mean, it, it was iconic. And now you get to show, wow, that is a pretty cool city versus right. you're inside a swimming pool. And I'm not taking anything from a swimming pool. I'm just right. saying that it doesn't show off a city the way triathlon can. And the Olympics realized that. If you think back, and I don't know if this was the reason they did this, but at the 99 World Championships, which were held in Montreal, the Australian women went first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And the Aussies decided to put women's triathlon, the very first event of the Olympic Games in their city. You know, I think, look, we just paid a couple billion bucks. Let's start off with a handful of medals on the first morning and get this party started. Uh, <laughs> so we, we were the first event. And so it had some cool things uh, starting it all off. But it also meant that some of the athletes, uh, most of the Americans and so forth, did not go to the opening ceremonies because it's a six hour event to go to opening ceremonies and you're racing at 10 o'clock the next morning. Right. Right. Well, the Australians, you, you know, you've been to a lot of first year events and there's so many glitches, but the Olympics, like I say, you know, the big stage, but they pulled it off. They nailed it on the first year. And, and from that time, in my estimation, everybody else lived, tried to live up to the standard of Sydney, which, I, which is a great thing for our sport because it put it, on this pedestal that we always wanted it to be on. You know, we wanted the world to know about triathlon and Sydney is what really did it for us. Those early training days in Victoria, uh, I was reading part of your book. You cherished those because everything was kind of new and fresh. Were you still kind of coaching on the fly then? Or because there wasn't a lot of other coaches out there, Barry, and there wasn't a lot of books you could read. There was literally nothing on coaching. Almost anything that existed in that era was sort of like, you know, listening to what Scott Tinley and Mark and Dave and yeah. the guys were doing around mostly Ironman racing, right? Uh, and so the challenge was suddenly, you know, think back, it was 93-ish when they went to draft legal racing. And that was an iconic moment, you know, for your viewers, because I remember at that moment within days, Lori Bowden, Lisa Bentley, Peter Reed, just to name you three uh, athletes who said, look, I don't swim fast enough to be competitive, in my estimation, in ITU racing. Heather Fuhrer, same thing. I remember taking Heather Fuhrer to world championships in the 90s. And so three or four of those athletes, but many others after. But they were brilliant because they were so smart strategically and said, I don't think I'm going to make that Sydney Olympic team. Uh, I don't swim fast enough. But boy, can I bike and run like nobody's business. And so those four particular athletes, you know, all moved to long distance almost overnight and have had some of the most incredible careers you could imagine. Many others fought it out for another five or six years, you know, thinking maybe I can get my swim fast enough and I can make that Olympic team. Uh, and many of them never did make Sydney or Athens after and, you know, got into long distance, but they lost probably five or six years. So when I was out there coaching at the time, I realized, look, no, in my estimation, there's probably only two or three coaches in the world, triathlon coaches, truly, who I would say are like above eight out of 10 in the swim and the bike and the run and the nutrition, et cetera. And so I took the approach, look, I don't think that one person can do justice personally uh, to the sport. I think you need a team around you. And so immediately we had the luxury because Victoria was uh, a place that the Commonwealth Games had been all of these world-class coaches and facilities, uh, the Olympic cycling coaches were there and so forth. So I took these people on, begged them to, to be my mentors over that year plus. And so we had PhDs, we had Olympic coaches in other sports like 800 meters running and cycling and so forth that all said, this is a stupid kind of thing, but this guy's enthusiasm is so whatever, we've got to get involved. And you know, Simon Whitfield was there and Mark Bates and many other incredible athletes who eventually went on to either Olympics or, or huge success. But it was a, an opportunity, you know, in those early days when like 
there was no federation overlooking us because they gave us no money. They didn't really know what the hell we were doing. Okay, if you crazy guys want to kind of all get together. So literally, we had to pay for our own pool time, which pretty much yeah. was zero because I begged the guy who ran the pool. Um, to, to, I said, look, I'm looking in this 50-meter pool, and every day for two hours, there's three gray-haired ladies doing front crawl, you know, head up, and the lifeguards are bored. Uh, and we literally found a dozen houses that took athletes for free to live because, as you know, it's expensive when you're a 24-year-old. You're still paying off your college fees, and now you're trying to figure out how you're going to move to another part of the world to train. And so the biggest expense was living. So I spent two weeks with a couple of athletes and we went door to door and we found eventually a dozen families, absolutely complete strangers. They didn't even know what triathlon was. I can still remember, you know, these these people. And they said, look, I have a, a, a granny flat in the basement or my kid's gone to college. You can have their room. And these people still today have become friends of triathlon and they come out and they watch and they are supportive. But, you know, our sport has always relied on fantastic volunteers, whether it's the volunteer at the race the people, you know, the mad dogs down in uh, in Florida, St. Pete's that take all those athletes home all the years that have been volunteers and, and homestays. So we've always relied on that. And I just got lucky that I said, I'm going to beg these people in Victoria to, you know, take home athletes. And because of that, a, a couple dozen athletes could move there and have a free place for eight months to live. And they helped kind of get that thing rolling that eventually Lance Watson and Paul Regensburg and others, you know, were involved in. But uh, the biggest important thing to ever end up coming out of Victoria, other than, in my estimation, Simon's gold medal, was Greg and Laura Bennett moved Victoria to become Simon's training buddies. And I, I in my personal opinion, part of Simon's victory was Greg Bennett's incredible training support, daily training partner leading into those Sydney Olympics. Like imagine the number one ranked guy in the world doesn't get picked by his country. I know. Uh, and he says, screw you guys. I'm moving to Canada to help a Canadian beat the Aussies. And that's exactly what he did. And when Simon went up into the grandstands uh, at the Sydney Olympics with his gold medal and plunked it around Greg Bennett's neck, whose father is sitting next to him in tears because he knows that could have been his son out there racing uh, and to understand the camaraderie of this partnership, it, it was really magical. It, you know, that, that moment and that time in the sport gelled together so many of us, Barry. I, I, I remember that vividly. And when Greg didn't get picked, I was down there, you know, always announcing Ironman in Australia. It was, it was a shocker to everybody in the country. And, and I, I give Greg props for his class and his demeanor to, be, to do that, to come on over and help somebody and a fellow comrade in triathlon. And, and, but for you to be there and see that all, oh, that must have been a darn special moment. You know, you, Canadian triathlon, Canada and the U.S. are connected and disconnected in so many ways. But when it comes to sport, I've always, oh my gosh, he's from Canada. It's almost like saying he's from Northern California. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying it in a good way. It's because of our connection. When Peter Reed came to Kona and, and won it in, what was his first year? Yeah, 1998. Did that did that kind of change the face of Canadian triathlon to have a, the first Canadian ever win Kona? Well, so to, to go back and, and to go on the history, because he was the first male, but certainly not the first right. female. So right. you go back to the Puntus twins, you know, who probably didn't give the, the same amount of recognition or visibility that a Laurie Bowden or a Peter Reed would have because they were predominantly French Canadian speaking. They really didn't go out of their way to get media. They didn't have a lot of sponsors. They stayed in Quebec. Uh, but, you know, again, to your early, you know, viewers, if they're kind of new to the sport, imagine it's in the 80s in twin, identical yeah. twin women are crossing the line at virtually every other Bud Light U.S. triathlon for about three years, you know, one, two hands, you know, whatever, and then winning Kona. Um, so they certainly helped start the sport. But the reality was, and you talked about the relationship of Canada and the United States. I mean, no doubt in my mind that Canada's success, even through to today, <clears throat> is significantly because of geography. So, you know, everything started down where you're at in California with, you know, the Collins uh, and everything that happened between San Diego and 74 and then 78 with Iron Man and so forth. And so Canada, we got lucky on about three accounts. One was all of our Western Canadian athletes in Vancouver, in British Columbia, in Penticton, they got a head start because of their connection to the West Coast of what was happening, and Les McDonald lived on the West Coast. Then there's this incredibly bright guy, Graham Fraser, 
who starts his series, you know, in the biggest, most populous province where I live in Ontario, just outside of Toronto. And within a few years, he's got 10 races that are virtually sold out every weekend, 1,500, 1,800 people in age group races talking in 87 and, 80, you know, in the 80s, having those kinds of numbers. He hosts the world championships in Muskoka. And so that starts the ball rolling. We're now on television. Like we were on television more in the 90s with Graham Fraser yeah. than we've been in the last seven or eight years in Canada. So he gets us on every other weekend and it becomes a huge important element in terms of promotion. You see another 22-year-old guy, I could be that guy or gal. And so uh, when eventually Peter wins, we've already been doing this bad boy stuff for you know about a decade of success. And Peter had been in our national team. I remember traveling with him to many races. In fact, he quit the sport for almost a year and said he was wor working in a factory doing something he was hating and said, you know what, I'm going to give this one more try. So he left Quebec, went out to Victoria, started to train. Rock Fry you know, has done a brilliant job with his career and coached him to his uh, his great wins. And so Peter put us on the map, no question. And then before you could blink, Simon Whitfield comes along yeah. and wins the biggest one-day race our country had ever seen. More people saw Simon. It was a Saturday night in September when the traditional Canadian would be literally in front of their television watching a hockey game. Literally at the time of the day that you'd be watching a hockey game was the time difference between a, a Sunday in Australia and a Saturday night uh, in Canada. And so there were numbers at one point that over 85% of Canadians identified Simon Whitfield, who he was, knew what sport he did, and that he won a gold medal. So, I mean, this is not like just, you know, kind of like whatever, some little Saturday morning 5K that you won. I mean, he did it in historic fashion. Now you've got an Ironman guy like Peter, you've got Simon Whitfield, you add Laurie Bowden and Heather Fjord and, you know, Carol Montgomery and some of the other great athletes that came in that era. Sharon Donnelly won the Pan Am Games. And, and so we've we were in our, 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 in my estimation, our heyday, the Canadian heyday was probably an, an eight-year window between about 98 and, say, 2008 when Simon won his uh, silver at Beijing. And in that 10 years, I did more live television for CBC in that 10 years than in any other period of time before or after. And it's because there were household rock stars who people love yeah. watching. Uh, and so it was great last weekend to be able to do the PTO stuff because now suddenly there's a Paula Finley and a Lionel Sanders and a Jackson Landry and some of these other names that are coming along. But if I had to say what was the heyday, it was that probably that 10 year window. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, being a part of the sport for a while, as you have, the history is always our foundation. But I'm always about tomorrow because I, like you, want this sport to grow and flourish and more people come into it, more youth come into it. And, and 10 years from now, we go, wow, look at the explosion. What do you, what do you think's happening right now with the sport with all that? Now that the PTO is putting stuff on TV, there's larger prize purses, uh, people are going to races all over the world and, and, uh, those types of things are happening. Do you see another little rise in the sport because of that? Well, I would say, you know, if I took a look it, between like 95 and say 2008 or nine, it was crazy. You literally just open up a race entry and it it's, sold it's, out, you know, within yeah. minutes. Yeah. Uh, new races were starting all over the world. And I think maybe as a sport, just and I say we collectively, you, I, every race director of federations, maybe got a little lazy and a little complacent thinking, hey, we're just going to keep seeing double digit rises. Yeah. And we know that that did not happen. So that was an issue. The second element that I think started to happen in there uh, were, you know, prices rising. We got to be understand that, you know, there's a certain dollar value that everyone has to spend on their weekends away and how many races. So I think that was something that occurred, et cetera. And then you add the pandemic in. But I, I'm really optimistic. I'm like you. I think I believe that good things can happen. There's a whole bunch of people around the world. More people now are doing a triathlon in more countries than any other time in the sport. But you add now the Super League, and then you add in the PTO and the amazing things that they've done in the last 24 months. You add in the wonderful stuff that you know Ironman has done for 40-plus years in terms of inspiring, et cetera, the number of new countries that continue to come in, and that was Les McDonald's push. If the Olympics had not happened, if you ask me, you know, there in my mind, there's kind of three milestone dates. You know, there's kind of that 74, maybe four, 74 when that first little race happened in San Diego, which was they didn't even know what they were really doing, but it happened. <laughs> 78 was the Ironman, really milestone date. 2000 Sydney. Uh, and then this 2022 at the PTO, because I think what they're going to do is they're going to increase the number of households that are watching the race, not during 
the Olympics. You know, we need to get just the average person who turns their television on and sees something happening in there. So I'm really optimistic. I think there's that short and fun stuff, that long stuff that, you know, the Ironman has, the middle stuff that the PTO is looking at doing. And I really believe it all fits together. You know, there's a year that you have the time to train for uh, an Ironman or a 70.3, but then there's going to be years that, you know what, I'm going to go do that ITU sprint race because I'm so busy at work. I've got nine hours a week max. Right. And I can fit in the 5K run and I can fit in, you know, 2K of swimming twice a week, et cetera. I was just in Montreal for the, the World Sprint Champs of three, four weeks ago. And it's fantastic to see 75-year-olds in a sprint race <laughs> hammering the heck out of each other. And, and an hour later, there's Georgia Taylor-Brown and, you know, that group of athletes, Alex Yee and so forth, you know, smashing it over 54, 55 minutes. So we really are at, at a golden moment. And I think we just have to, as a sport, not see each other as competition but say, look, we all belong to the same family, whether it's long or short, there's a respect in there. Some of these athletes, you know, are amazing and come all the way through, like a Tim Dawn and others have come from, you know, being short course to long stuff to back to, you know, coaching and in the Super League and so forth. Chris McCormack, obviously the poster boy for something like that. So I, I really think that we're in a good place. And I think that every race does not have to be a massive you know, 10,000 people, $1,000 entry fee. I mean, I love it seeing grassroots stuff and I still put on a few of those races. In some cases you get the biggest smiles, but of course people ultimately want to get to a big event. And so going to an Edmonton or a Dallas or, you know, over to the Collins Cup or to Kona, those are all places that you dream about and you save your pennies and every three or four years you plan to go back. Hold on everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Curad, the official medical supplier of Iron Man. Let Curad keep you strong so those strains and pains of training and you trying to find your finish line go away. With their wraps, races, and tape, and especially their far-infrared kinesiology tape that'll keep you strong through all your training. Check out their products today on Amazon.com, at Walmart, and Ironman.com, and let Curad help you Find your finish line. So heroes, we talked about it earlier, the ones in our sport that are that are up there. They've created it because of their performances. But nowadays, on your opinion on this, with social media, Barry, all over the place, obviously some athletes are on it more than others. They're promoter, promoting it more. They probably got people helping them so they can get more likes and get more viewers and all that good stuff. Where, where's our, are our heroes, are the ones we're going to look at come from performances or the ones that are out there doing the best job on social media or the combination of the two? Well, I mean, I think you, you, the, the absolute rock star will be, you know, a Lionel Sanders, a Christian Blumenfeld, a Flora Duffy, who, you know, bring you to the other side. You get to see how they are as a person away from the sport, their personality, what they do, how they prepare. And then there's, you can never get away. I mean, there's magic of being able to, on the day, close the deal, win the race, you know, whether that's an Olympic swimmer, you know, Ladaki or whoever the case may be. Like, you want to, for me as a, as a just fan, uh, I love to see all the social media stuff. It, and there's some people that are way better at social media than they are as an athlete. And they understood <laughs> that. I mean, they literally understood that, right? They go, look, I can bring a certain value to my sponsor uh, by getting eyeballs and on the race day, I'm going to be 20th, but you know, I'm a personality. I'm going to hang out after and, and go to the pub with you guys or come over and shake your hands of your age group athletes. And there's a place for those people. That's important. But the ultimate rock star is going to be the athlete who has social media and can be on the podium or challenge, you know, virtually every weekend. And, and these are things that Dave and Mark and Karen Smyers and that bunch didn't have as a luxury. You know, they had to rely on the television and the odd magazine that would come out once a month to uh, tell their story. But now you literally can go and see what a training session looks like at altitude with, you know, the Norwegian boys or whatever the case may be. So I think we're in a great place as, as viewers. And, the uh, you know, the uh, it's a, probably more complicated for the sponsor to figure out where do I put my dollars because I could get somebody who gets me some eyeballs, but can never win. I can get somebody who wins, but is antisocial. You know, how do I get the mixture? And I think the brightest athletes get that they got to play both of those roles and they have to save some energy. And I've watched the big, you know, the best guys in the world 
they either have managers around them or certainly people that appreciate that I got to get you in for this interview. And there's some people that are going to, you know, tell your story and we need to spend some time, even though it would be easy to go back to the hotel room and just want to save your legs. Right, right. You know, whatever. But, you know, the Brownleys of the world have always done Gomez and Gwen Jorgensen and all those people in my career. They spent their hour and a half at every race to come and do the interviews, even though they would have preferred to go put their feet up and rest. At Ironman Lake Placid, Barry, last weekend, uh, Heather Jackson came in second behind Sarah True. Sarah had a tremendous race, and Cody Beals won the men's. But the Heather Jackson story is it's now about 10.45. You know, the race finishes at midnight. I get a tap on my shoulder, and it's Heather standing behind me on the stage. Mike, I'm here. I'm here to put medals on, okay? Just like a fresh new rookie. I go, okay, Heather, that's that's great. So I told the crowd, Heather Jackson's here putting medals on every, you know, two-time winner of Lake Placid. And that is speaks volumes for that athlete. And she was there until well after the last finisher came in doing that, and the crowd just adored it. And and I, and we all adored it. She's uh, such a rock star. I spend the winters in Tucson and, and that's where yeah. she we literally swim in the same pool every day. So, you know, I watch her work ethic there. But, you know, when Ashley Gentle needed a place to stay when she came to town, Heather Jackson put her up. When Paula Finley and, and Eric Lagerstrom needed a place to stay for two or three weeks, two years ago, they were at Heather's place. So, you know, she she's not just an incredible athlete, but she's just a really amazing woman who gives of herself and and understands that, you know, she's incredibly talented. But, you know, the world's more than just somebody who can go fast. I mean, you want to see somebody who inspires you in other ways, not just how fast they go. Right. Right. Well, Barry, let's jump into, there it is, baby, chasing greatness, you know, of passion, perseverance, and sport and life. You, you wrote a book, and I kind of know what that's about, and it's a tough, tough process. Tell us, what was your objective of sitting down and putting this together, Barry? What do you well, want to accomplish? Well, kudos on, on your book because uh, oh, watching incredible you. people like yourself and, you know, Emma Carney and, you know, Siri Lindley over the years and, and those kinds of books, uh, you never fully appreciate how many stages you go through. And so after talks that I would do, clinics and so forth, people would always say, oh, I'd love to hear more about that story. But, you know, the clinic's an hour and a half long or something and you couldn't get into other stories they were asking for. So on those massive airline you know, flights, 17 yeah. hours to get to South Africa and so forth, I would use my time to make little notes and start to write. So I had probably eight years of writing just on airplanes. And then the greatest thing that ever happened to me was the pandemic. I had to spend uh, in Canada, each time you come back in the country during yeah. that era, you had to go two weeks in quarantine. So I was down at the Daytona Challenge race, boom, back two weeks into quarantine when I came back to Toronto. So I had six weeks over a, a year that I literally was by myself for 24 hours a day in the basement. My wife would put a pail of food at the top of the stairs and uh, say, see you in 24 hours. So I, I had nothing to do other than just write. And so it gave me that quiet time that you and I never can find because you're coaching or announcing or helping at charities and so forth. So I, I was stuck. I couldn't go anywhere. So I wrote 95% of the book or rewrote the chapters that I had done some stuff with. So the objective really was um, felt so blessed of all of these incredible people, you know, like yourself and like the Daves and the Karens and, you know, the Miles Stewarts of the world that I've had the chance to meet over the last 35 years. Um, people I still don't think fully understand Les McDonald's incredible, you know, thing. I mean, some people do, but, you know, this is the man who literally as a volunteer started the ITU, got us into the Olympics, and he's passed now, so he can't speak for himself. Some of us need to speak for him. And we're literally, in my estimation, are at the end of the first generation, i.e., you know, the James Wards and a few of those people have passed, but basically yeah. the people who have been a, a, a part of our sport since day one, Sister Madonna just had her, I think, 92nd birthday. All the legends are still here. And before we lose them, I wanted some of these stories to kind of get out. I mean, I've had those relationships with those incredible people. And so partially I wanted those who maybe haven't been as lucky as I have to be around the world and see those people, meet them, see the events, watch, you know, Ali Brownlee drag his brother across the line and, and cause him out at the world championships and then the crazy stuff that goes on that you and I know happened behind the scenes that we try to make look nice and smooth. But, you know, 30 minutes before you had no microphone working down at the lake or, you know, there's a tornado headed towards your race venue or in some cases a fire out in Penticton. They got to change the course two days before, you know, all of those things have happened in our careers. 
And you had to have resiliency, both as an athlete, as a commentator, as a coach, as a spectator. Um, so uh, there's a million stories I could have told that, you know, are negative. Uh, there's probably not one in the whole book because there's so many incredible people that you and I run into that inspire us. And the book is not just about triathlon. Um, I had a young man, for example, who who uh, was in a, a really bad work accident. He was 20 years of age, getting ready for college. He had all these scholarships coming his way. Uh, one of the best 110-meter hurdlers. He could have been a baseball scholarship in the States. And he ended up being literally paralyzed uh, in an accident at a, at a workplace situation. And he could have just got angry at the world. He's now down on a scholarship at ASU at Arizona State University in a Paralympic program, CA Challenge Athletes Fund have supported him and he's looking at the Paralympics and he spent three winters with me and watching him the first time he arm cranked to the top of 26 miles of Mount Lemmon. You know, when I know great wow. cyclists who struggled to get there, yeah. I had tears in my eyes because this had been a two year project of his. So, so the book itself hopefully inspires some people, hopefully gives them a sense of the crazy journeys that people like you and I go on and the, and the amazing people we get to interact with and to know that their journeys are never straight lines because you see somebody at a finishing line. Uh, there's a story in there of a, of a 70 year old that I coach and right now, literally tomorrow, we're out for a hundred miler. He's 74 and the objective is to qualify for Kona next year. So he, he was one of only two people who've ever broken 12 hours and Hawaii as a 70 year old in the Ironman when he won in 2018. And he wants to be the first 75-year-old to ever break 13 hours in Kona next year. So this guy had cancer. He could have packed it in. It, you know, the cancer could have taken him. He could have just said, look, I'm, I'm in my 70s. I'm going to, you know, whatever. And right now, I got a 74-year-old guy who's getting ready for next year's Kona in 2023. And so that's what keeps you and I inspired when you see these people. And so the book is filled with all of those stories. Of course, the Sydney Olympics and the Brownleys and Gomez and, you know, the Gwen Jorgensons. I mean... One fast story about Gwen, the head of NBC Sports happened to run into me in the cafeteria in uh, Rio and said, people tell me you're the triathlon dude, like, <laughs> come here, we got to talk. So I don't know this guy, I didn't even know at the time he was the boss. Anyway, I go and sit, sit with him at a table and he says, we have to make a decision tomorrow. We're either sending our A team to triathlon to cover this Gwen Jorgensen or we're sending it to gymnastics uh, and sending the B team to triathlon. Is, is Gwen going to win the race? because that's going to decide whether we're sending the more cameras and more people and, and whatever. So, so anyway, he's asking, he's asking you to make up to tell you yes or well, no. I, what's the probability this girl's going to win? Not just kind of get on the, yeah, the podium yeah. because you know, in America, you have 82 gold medalists by the right. end of the Olympic games, right. uh, bronze, uh, whatever, you know, like in Canada, when we get a gold medal, we do a parade for a week, but, uh, but you know, you've got so many great swimmers and track and you name it. So ultimately, I said, look, I believe where she's at in her career, where she's at at this moment, this course, she has a very good chance. And obviously the Nicholas Birics and the Flora Duffies were all in the back of my mind, but I, I really believe it was Gwen's moment. So anyway, he sends the A-team. I walk out of the booth after doing the announcement. I just happened to see him coming down the hallway and he just kind of thumbs up. Yep. Yep. She won her gold. Good on you. And you know, his job's now to find the next sport that they're going to win a gold medal on right, the next right. day. So these are all these fun, crazy things that you never could have imagined when you come from a town of 2000 without a stoplight. Um, <laughs> you know, that Where one you, day that, what town were you from in Ontario? Uh, the little town is called Harrow, which is way more famous for Lionel Sanders. Lionel yeah. grew up, we went to yeah. the same high school, yeah. literally, and 20 years, uh, there's 20 years between us, roughly in age. He got a, his, his high school teacher called me and said, look, I got this kid that's, I can't describe him. Like he's unique and, and he's running and we've got the, the, the provincial championships coming up. Can you help me coach him? So I would send the workouts down to this guy, Dale Larson, the chemistry teacher. And so I went to the championships to see Lionel race. I'd never seen the kid, only his data. And it was not the kid I thought I would see. I thought I'd see this ectomorphic runner who had, you know, he's been putting in these really fast times. And I see this guy who looks like he should be playing rugby or soccer, not, not running. And so we went for supper and I'd gone and walked the course and gave him some suggestions on how I thought he should run this course. And he did completely the opposite of what I had suggested. He went out <laughs> like, like a wild man for the first 500 meters. He had 50 meters on second place and ended up in 16th place, dragging himself to the finish with pure guts of Sanders. And I saw what his personality was like then. And so, you know, over time, I eventually brought him up to where I live in, in Toronto uh, in our club. 
financed his first, you know, three or four years of his bikes, of his travel, of his, you know, brought him to Tucson, Arizona, where he now lives. And so <clears throat> it was great to watch Lionel's journey and, you know, the amazing team he's got around, he and Aaron, you know, with him now. But, you know, we signed literally his first sponsor. I, I was doing all that stuff for him at the time. Louis Garneau at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night in Mount Tremblant uh, in 2014. And they had no intentions of sponsoring a triathlete. Like, you know, maybe we'll give him a bike. By the end of the night, I convinced them that this guy is special. They'd never heard of him. And, you know, let's 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 give this a chance. And the next day he went from dead last to, through yeah. Sebastian Keenley and all those great athletes. And the only guys still ahead of him, I think, were Tim Dons, uh, Jan Ferdino and Javier Gomez. He ran himself into fourth place, you know, in the first 70.3 outside of the United States. And and so I got a phone call from Garneau saying, ah, maybe this kid's got something special. And, you know, they spent a lot of time with him. He's still his shoes and that kind of stuff and, you know, help find Freshie and those kinds of places. So it's been great that a kid who came from the same town, you know, literally, we had no swimming pool. Uh, and that's probably both our problems. Had, had he had a swimming pool when he was 12, he wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't still be working on his swim at 30 years of age. But anyway, it's been fun to watch his journey and what a special athlete Lionel is. Yeah, what what an honor for you to be a part of that journey because and and be a big influence on that journey. Lionel, I think, is one of the freshest things that, that's happened to our sport in a very very long time. Uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, I don't know about a week ago, there was a picture of you and Lionel somewhere, and I sent him and Aaron a message. Hey, I'm going to have Barry on the show. Oh my God, that's great! You know, they came right back, and uh, that connection there is very strong. I don't know about you, Barry, but. For me, when I wrote the book, there were stories I had to leave out that really hurt. It was, you know, you can only do, you can't write war and peace. You know, you got to, yours like 200, what, 80 pages? I, I'm little less than that. And, and I had to leave these stories out. Did that hurt you? Like it hurt me? Oh my God. So I'm not sure who did that for you, but you know, I said, look, you know, if, if you're going to do this, you need to get a proper editor after I wrote the book. <laughs> And she was fantastic. She really was. And and was great because she wasn't a triathlon groupie. She didn't know the sport. And so, but she, she was so thrilled at the end of reading all of this stuff that she said, I would buy that book as somebody who's never done a triathlon, doesn't know two triathletes names, but she was so thrilled with just the material. Uh, <clears throat> but she did the evil evil, which was the right. stories that got cut. And, and they were so painful. For example, <clears throat> There's a kid named Rob Crar who won the Western States 100 two years in a row or two yeah. out of three years. Yeah. Uh, he literally, I he was one of my junior triathletes who I took to <laughs> World Championships in 1994 to uh, Wellington, New Zealand. And so we reconnected. One day I'm in an airport and I see this picture, America's Greatest Runner. And I'm looking and it looked like Forrest Gump, big beard, lean chest, you know. He had just won, I think, the Western States 100 for the second time. And I'm like, I recognize that face. And I look and it's Rob Crar, And I'm going... I coached that kid 15 years ago. So anyway, for the book, I track him down. He's living in Flagstaff, running these great courses of long distance uh, training sessions for people. Amazing guy. Uh, and and that story, as incredible as it is, uh, is a standalone story that at a dinner party, you could tell the story just like half an hour, right. just about how amazing he is, doesn't make the book. And so for me, there was two or three parts. One is I, these were important stories and great people and great messages. So that was painful that it never made it. And secondly, I just didn't want them to feel like, hey, your your time with me just didn't matter that much. You know, you didn't you didn't make <clears throat> the book because you weren't important enough. In fact, right, that right. wasn't the case at all. It, it was painful. So, you know, my <clears throat> my wife, who is my biggest fan and, and the person who edited the you know final spelling, grammar stuff, et cetera. She's already making notes for Chasing Greatness 2, and I'm like, I just got to get to Chasing Greatness 1 uh, right now. But it's been fun because people, because of Amazon, uh, and if you're outside of Canada, it's the easiest way to get the book by far. Right. right. Um, Australia, New Zealand, UK, I've been getting you know calls and emails and texts and stuff from people all around the world who <clears throat> were parts of those experiences. Uh, and so how, how amazing... 20 years later, 30 years later, you know, to run into people that were really important part of your life. And, you know, because of they're not traveling any longer, maybe you don't run into them or the race isn't there any longer. I mean, one of the greatest races, if you talk literally, Mike, to <clears throat> Hunter Kemper and Joanna Zagar and all of the French kids and the Brits uh, from that kind of 98 to about 2004, and you ask them, what was the greatest triathlon in the world for them in that era? 
uh, you'll get a, probably a 90 percentile saying Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Like, most of your viewers don't know where that place is, never heard of it. And this was a town of 20,000 people. And this guy, who is a fisherman, a very mm -hmm. successful fisherman, I might say, uh, said, look, we're going to bring the best athletes in the world to my town. And everyone laughed. He literally showed up at Graham Fraser's World Championships in 92 with the ugliest purple cod squad fish. It's a fish cod squad, ugly T-shirt saying, look, you got to come down to my town. I'm like, dude, I, I, my life is busy. I don't know where Cornerbrook <laughs> is. I'm not going there. He gave me 10 airline tickets and 10 VIP hotel nights and so forth. And I brought Lisa Bentley and all these athletes down, Peter Reed. Uh, and they absolutely adored the place. Within four years, it was now a World Cup race. It hosted Alistair Brownlee at, at, at the World Duathlon Champs one year. And these guys, literally the entire town would shut down. And you know those kinds of towns where every person is there plus a neighbor who comes into town, et cetera. And so, you know, these are places that you and I have been able to get to. Maybe they're not on the circuit any longer, but the memories of those places, you know, are incredible. And Scott Molina literally went there this is how tough the course is. No man had ever broken two hours for an Olympic distance race in this course. I mean, Scott Molina became the first guy to ever do that. And he stayed at Bill Barry's house at the guy who who owned the race and ran it. And Molina's like, this is the craziest town I've ever been to. And, and, you know, and, and so Craig Walton eventually destroyed that record. And Hunter Kemper and all these great athletes, you know, would come back and race at this place. Exactly. You know, listening to you, Barry, and Knowing and uh, hearing the great voice you have, are you going to do an audio book? You know what? I need to talk to you when we get off air. <clears throat> I know squat about that, but I have probably, ironically... Let's talk. 50 people, I'm not exaggerating, maybe 100 people yeah. in the last seven days have said to me out in Edmonton, various places, when is your audio book coming out? And yeah. I, I profess, I'm, my ignorance is so large, I have never listen to an audiobook. I, I'm not in the same seat for 16 seconds, but uh, dozens and dozens of people have said that. So it's clearly something I need to investigate. Uh, and you and I, I mean, the hardest part for me was you and I are much better at telling a story probably than writing a story. And so the, the, all the details were there in the book, but uh, like my editor's like, you sound like you're talking to me. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it should be. Yeah. And so so in, in the end, I think the audio stuff will be easier for you and I to do, um, but at least gives me a script to get started at the very least, you know, in there. And so we'll it is something I have to take a look at. This yeah, technology we'll is incredible. And people who sit on bicycles and ride for two and three hours on their trainers and long car rides or airplane rides are saying, look, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And, and don't worry to all of our Find Your Finish Line listeners out there. We're talking to Barry Shepley. I'll work on them to get that audio book out. That would okay? be fun. I'll, I'll, you, uh, you have pushed me over the edge. I'm going to make that happen because uh, uh, to hear a writer tell me that uh, means that all these other people weren't exaggerating. Yeah, they, they're not. Trust me. Barry, what what advice would you give to age groupers and, and pros alike, but mostly the age groupers? Obviously, they're juggling families and work and with the pandemic and the races being canceled, being deferred. So many people came up to me on Lake Placid. I've been waiting three years to do a race and on and on and on. What kind of advice would you give to those age groupers so they can keep that positive attitude and keep moving forward? What's Barry, what Barry, what Barry Shepley's advice? Well, I mean, I think there's two or three things. So, you know, one of the things that I don't believe you need to do every year is go bigger and longer and faster and whatever the case may be. So I'm, I'm dealing with some athletes right now going through, you know, relationship and work issues and kids that are, you know, having some challenges with their, you know, the parents worrying about the time to invest back in their kids. So to me, this should always be about fun and lifestyle. And it always makes me sad when I see somebody who's a spectacular athlete, 7% body fat. I mean, they just did a you know, a 947 age group Ironman finish. And they're like pissed at themselves because they wanted a 932. And I'm like, my God, that's your biggest problem? Like the freaking Ukraine right now, there's a guy in a, in a cement bunker who doesn't know he's getting food tomorrow. And your thing was, well, I was 12 seconds slower on my, you know, my kilometer time in the last 5K, et cetera. So I get high performance. I totally get that. I have this guy who wants to break 13 hours at 75. We're going to treat this just like it's Simon Whitfield or, you know, uh, the, the young stars of today that are trying to go out there and do their greatness. But I think it's important to go back to the first principle. Like, we all did this because we love to exercise and we love to spend, you know, spend time with our friends. 
And boy, isn't it great to be able to like feel like you're 15 or 20 years younger than some of your classmates who you ran into and said, my God, that other 60 year old dude looks 83 in it the way he acts. And, you know, you're out there hiking with your kids or in your case, your grandkids, whatever the case may be. So I think that you first every year should go back to like, how are we going to make this fun this year? Like that is critical in my mind. And, and I've talked people out of Ironman races and 70.3s and marathons because I knew this is going to be an absolute hellhole six months. You're going to hate every session of it, but you feel an obligation that you did a half last year and you now have to do an Ironman this year. So I literally sit down and try to talk to people about their motivation, the amount of resources, how much time. That's a critical one. You know, you might have the time, but your wife, you know, is is got some illness right now or you're taking care of your mother-in-law and you know that you're just not going to be able to get those long bike sessions in and you're going to be feeling stressed about it for the next. Why not? Let's go back down and work on speed and 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 do a race that's going to take one hour the sprint triathlon. And that will. So I move my guys up and down on a every one or two or three year basis, totally based on totally based on just how much time they have, motivation, et cetera. So when that 70 year old, you know, broke 12 hours, it would have been easy to go back the next year because he already had a qualifying spot yeah. to go back and try to go even faster. And we said, look, you know what? We took a lot of energy out of you and your family and so forth for that year. Let's go and do some shorter stuff for a year or two and, and rebuild, et cetera. So I, I would say, make sure that it's fun. Find people that you enjoy spending time with. And so, you know, I've got clubs that I've helped develop all around the world. And the most enjoyable thing, if you talk to almost any person, it's the journey of getting to that race. The guy or gal that they went out and did the long swim with or the bike. And in our case, in the club that I coach in, in Canada, like probably every year, there's about 20 people I identify who say, it's not my year. And I go, perfect. I have the job for you. Your yeah. job is about five times this summer. I'm going to need someone who's going to go bike. 120k you know the last 120k of 180k with my age group lady who needs some motivation late in the ride when she's going to want to stop or whatever the case may be so when we get to an event there is a collective energy amongst everyone that that lady had 12 people contributing to her long day run her swim or whatever the case may be so i think sometimes when you know it's not your year to race be the training partner you're still training you're, you're getting all the benefits of cardiovascular and the fun. And in fact, some cases, people actually end up being happier, you know. Uh, and one of my favorite memories is one of your greatest athletes. He's my favorite guy in the world, Doug Freeman, uh, you know, was on the Olympic team way back uh, or tried to make the Olympic teams in 2000, 2004. And he had just missed making the Athens team. He was, you know, really bummed. And I knew he was in sitting at 110 degrees in Austin, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, you know, not training. And I called him and said, I've got these 18-year-old kids who need a big brother to come and kick their ass for the next three months and brought him up to Canada. And he did such an amazing job that my guys had phenomenal seasons. But by October, I think he won nationals that year for the United States. And he would have been sitting on his butt being depressed all summer because he hadn't made the Olympic team. Right. So giving to other people sometimes is the greatest contribution you can make to yourself. You know, you, you're not yeah. thinking about your own problems, et cetera. And, and we've seen that. That's, that's why I love the sport so much. It is a strong family unit. And, uh, you know, we all have our families at home and our loved ones. But when uh, we're able to go to the races, the, the family unit and the uh, camaraderie and the passion in triathlon is amazing. To see the families on the sidelines, it's incredible. Really, I, the I smiles, the T-shirts, the posters. And, and you're, you can see like that is their son's Olympic yeah. day or wife's yeah. Olympic day. You know, I mean, they feel exactly like the parent of an Olympian and they should because of the contribution, the amount of hours. And this is something they probably had sat watching on a television 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And now it's them out there on the course. I mean, Mike, the number of people you've been able to bring across the line and, you know, their most important moment of their career you're attached to, you know, I, I understand that. Uh, and you know, that role that you play there and, and what, a, what a special bond you have with those people. It is. It's uh, it's an honor. Barry on find your finish line. The last question I ask is comes from uh, table racing. Table racing came out of the Baja 1000. I've got friends that have the, the big trucks and they, they've won the Baja 1000 and they call it table racing. They sit around the table, the picnic table, the chairs and reminisce about the event. So I call it tri table racing. So reminisce with us about any event, whether you participated in, coached or whatever, that comes to your mind right away. So reminisce and, and try table race with us right now. 
Okay, well, uh, there's so many, but I'll, I'll take one that certainly wouldn't jump out at probably any of your other listeners or viewers. 1992, Graham and Sue Fraser hosting the World Championships in Muskoka, a place that has now hosted some yeah. of the biggest races in the world for 30 plus years. Um, and, you know, all the superstars had finally, for the first time, come to Canada. Simon Lessing wins the race. McKilly Jones, you know, wins the race right in front of this uh, big, beautiful hotel a beautiful fall day. Some of the greatest athletes who've ever done the sport in that era were racing there. And Rob Burrell and Mike Pig and all of these athletes you know, of that era are racing out on the course. I had my first chance to announce live a world championships. Um, so I'm, I'm at the finishing line doing the commentary uh, for this event, seeing the athletes coming in all day long. Uh, and so, first of all, I that was my first feeling of being connected to that greatness. I mean, you know, you watched it, but now literally you're having a chance to bring, you know, Simon Lessing across the finishing line, McKilly Jones in across the finishing line. Uh, and to add to that moment in that day, I had a, a 18 year old, uh, Christy Otto was her name and she got the bronze medal in the world juniors. And I've coached her since she was 13 years of age. And so to be announcing, bringing her in across wow. the line for her first medal at a world championships. And she was in a battle for third and fourth with a gal named Sarah Harrow from New Zealand, I think if my memory goes back. So, you know, that whole era was just the breakthrough. And when I look back at the results, Cameron Brown was a teenager winning a bronze medal in Muskoka in 1992. And now he's a 50 plus year old, you know, who is still kicking still some serious butt. And how many times on the podium in Hawaii and a dozen or so of his of his wins in New Zealand. So that was that kind of breakout moment, you know, and I, I've let Graham Fraser know how important that was for me. I mean, he gave this kind of nobody young dude a chance to try to build my skills in his series, account, doing the commentating. And then instead of say, bringing in a more established person for the world championships, I got that opportunity in 92. And so that will always kind of stick out because, you know, suddenly it was like two or three or four years later, whether it was Brad Bevan or whoever you were announcing, I mean, I've seen all these guys now for three or four or five years, and I never stopped being ad admiring them. But but I I just did my job, you know, as as you do your job, and you weren't overwhelmed by oh my god, out there is Emma Carney or whoever, you know. It, it's just these phenomenal athletes, and my job always was to try to make it entertaining for the spectators. And you know, you do the same thing. I mean, you've got two or six or twelve or seventeen hours. That's a long time. You know, it's not a tennis match that's done in a couple of hours or a soccer match that's done in 90 minutes. You got to entertain. And so you and I and Steve King and all the great announcers, Paul Kay and all the other great announcers I see around the world, we all have the same thing. We're armed with 10,000 stories and you're never going to get them all out in even 17 hours. But that's a cool thing to do. Well, Barry, you know what? I had a buddy say to me the other day, we were sitting down watching a baseball game and uh, he goes, don't you kind of wish you went into baseball announcing? Because we're a baseball family. My son played a lot of ball. And, and, and I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you don't even have to do it for like three hours, a nine-inning game. I go, I know, that'd be unbelievable, you know. But, but I wouldn't have the passion that, that I wanted to have. And that, that was it. So, Barry, you are an amazing, amazing guy. Uh, what you've done in this sport, I, I don't think it's going to be paralleled. You just keep going and going and and as I said earlier, the sport is much better off because you're in it. Canada is is up there because you're in it. And uh, uh, we appreciate that. So thank you very much for being on the show. Mike, it, it is a great pleasure. And literally, you and I know how lucky we are. I mean, you know, yeah. I watch the shows. I see all the great people that are out on these podcasts. And, and it's incredible when you realize the magnitude from young to old coaches to sponsors you know, and we're still in that first generation. I mean, you know, with the exception of, of a Les and a James Ward and a few others, we, we still our there, family yeah. is still intact, right? Yeah. And I never want to forget that. And I know that in 25 years from now, we can't say that. We will not be able to say that all of these pioneers that played those roles are still here. And so sometimes you just need to step back and say, let's just uh, have a party here. Let's Let's enjoy this person. And I know that you're seeing it as I am when you get to races right now. The, the absolute pure joy of people who maybe took it for granted that they're gonna see you in another three weeks or six months or whatever, hadn't seen each other for two or three years, maybe lost some training partners because they stopped doing the sport or you know the pool was closed or, or whatever. So 
Chasing Greatness by Barry Shepley. Hopefully okay. some of your viewers uh, will will think about it. Amazon will get it in your house in about 24 hours. And, and I'll, uh, I'll work on them, everybody, about that audio book, okay? Awesome. <laughs> I, I, will, I will credit you as the, the dude who pushed me over the top, over the top, for sure. Barry, thank you very much again. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another edition of Find Your Finish Line, presented by Curad Performance Series, the official medical supplier of Ironman. You can find it on Amazon, at Walmart, and Ironman.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. Obviously, you can pick it up on Spotify and all the channels, or go to MikeRiley.net and pick it up there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, remember, you're the cause of your own experience. Go out and create great experiences for yourself. Aloha.